The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, Flight 600. Let me take you back to the dim, distant past and Captain Jeff start with his legacy airline, Acme. I, I mean, Delta. No, Acme. Delta. Acta. Delmi. Or whatever. His career started not in the captain's seat, but somewhere in the bowels of the flight deck, sitting sideways with control panels in front of him instead of windows that stretched to the ceiling. Jeff was an engineer on his favourite three-holer, the Boeing 727. Boeing had launched their first jetliner, the 707, in 1958, and only two years later they addressed the need for an aircraft that was more suited to shorter flight lengths from smaller airports. The original 727, that would eventually be named the Dash 100 series, rolled out on the 27th of November 1962 and flew in early February the following year. Twelve months later, it entered service with Eastern Airlines, and in 1972, the type was acquired by Delta, who eventually held the world's largest fleet of 727-200 series with 129 airframes. There had been conflicting requirements amongst the customer airlines, but since the twin-engine regulations of the time banned over-water routes that went beyond 60 minutes flying time from a diversion, Eastern, with its Caribbean services, won the day, and the other airlines agreed on a trijet design. It had been suggested that Boeing work with the British manufacturer de Havilland, since both were producing trijets, and Boeing intended to use a Rolls-Royce Spey power plant built under licence by Allison. Cooperation between the companies ended when Boeing favoured design features more suited to an American market, with six abreast seating in the narrow body and an ability to use the shorter runways found in rural areas. The Hawker Siddeley Trident, as it became, however, beat the 727 into the air by more than a year. By 1960, Pratt & Whitney were completing the design of their new JT-8D turbojet engine, which, despite being a thousand pounds heavier than the Spey, was preferred by Eddie Rickenbacker, the chairman of Eastern. Boeing reluctantly agreed to offer it as an option, and it later became the sole option. The three engines were all mounted at the rear, two either side of the fuselage in pods and one in between them, the intake of which was blended into the T-tail. The number two engine was mounted internally, within the tail section, with the jet exhaust at the point of the fuselage. In order to feed the air to this engine, an S-shaped duct connected the two which proved to be a troublesome design. Airflow distortion in the duct, particularly during power changes, could surge the engine, which occurred during the very first takeoff, right at the point of rotation. This gave the test pilots, Lou Wallach and Dix Loesch, a 
few moments of concern, but the maiden flight continued safely. Whilst the number two engine design problems were mainly cured by a change to the S-curves, the inclusion of vortex generators on the inside of the first bend, and instructions on careful throttle handling, the wing design of the 727 was much admired by its operators. With no wing-mounted engines, it could deploy full-length Kruger flaps inboard and leading-edge slats outboard right up to the wingtip. The trailing edge was equipped with highly efficient triple-slotted Fowler flaps that helped give the wing as a whole a three-times advantage in lift coefficient when compared to a clean configuration. Being designed for America's smaller and simpler airports, the 727 was given a few distinctive features to aid operation. It was the world's first airliner to be equipped with a gas turbine auxiliary power unit. In the past, auxiliary engines had been used on aircraft from blimps like the British Coastal Class in World War I through military aircraft like the Supermarine Nighthawk to the US aircraft like the B-29 Superfortress and C-47 Skytrain. These motors were various models of four-stroke engines that powered a DC generator and nicknamed by the Americans putt-putts. The small jet engine fitted in the 727 wing route powered the electrical and air conditioning systems without having to start a main engine when external equipment wasn't available. In addition, the aircraft featured a built-in air stair that lowered from the rear fuselage to allow passengers to come and go when the airport lacked sufficient external air stairs. The 727's rear air stair could initially be raised and lowered in flight. This novel feature was used by the hijacker D.B. Cooper as an escape hatch from which he parachuted with $200,000 of ill-gotten gains. His disappearance, with most of the money, remains one of the world's most fascinating unsolved mysteries. To prevent copycats from using this convenient feature, at the insistence of the FAA, a spring-loaded air vane was fitted that deflected when flying, obstructing the door and preventing it from being used until the aircraft slowed below flying speed again. In order to access short runways, the 727 could lower its flaps to a full 40 degrees, a feature that may have led to a number of aircraft losses in the first few months of operation, killing a total of 131 people. The airliner was able to build up extremely high rates of descent, particularly with full flaps deployed, which the pilots, unaccustomed to this new aircraft's capabilities, failed to arrest in time to prevent impact with the ground. In most cases, there was little evidence to finger a specific cause but all occurred in descent prior to starting an approach or whilst manoeuvring during one. A number of carriers banned the use of more than 30 degrees of flap on approach, even going so far as to install plates on the flap selector to prevent the handle from going past the 30 degree position. 
Amongst some pretty noisy aircraft of the time, the 727 was one of the most deafening. The JT-8D engine was a low-bypass turbofan, the E-flux of which created severe shearing when it exited the engine, a major cause of jet noise. In 1972, when the US Noise Control Act mandated the introduction of quieter engines, Boeing determined that the JT-8D-200, a higher bypass and more fuel-efficient engine, could be fitted to the sides of the fuselage in the number 1 and 3 positions, but the bigger fan couldn't be squeezed into the restricted place where the number 2 engine sat. A hush kit was eventually made available that allowed the 727 to fly past the end of the 90s. 727 was very successful. It ushered in the bus stop style of short-haul flying that served small communities throughout the world. Boeing needed to sell 200 airframes to break even, but for over a decade, more 727s were built per year than any other jet airliner. In 1984, production ended, with 1,831 airframes delivered, the highest total for any jet airliner until the 737 surpassed it in the early 1990s. The loss rate of this iconic airliner was unhappily quite high. As of 2019, the aircraft had suffered 351 major incidents, of which 119 resulted in a total loss. The loss of life resulting from these bare numbers has risen to over 4,000 souls. One addition to those sad statistics came from Flight 600. The aircraft was a 727-200 series of Alia Royal Jordanian Airlines. It first flew in 1974 and was barely four and a half years old. Juliet Yankee Alpha Delta Uniform was operating on a scheduled passenger flight between Amman Queen Alia International Airport in Jordan and Doha International Airport in Qatar. The date was Wednesday, the 14th of March, 1979. The airliner had been named the City of Petra after the remarkable UNESCO World Heritage Site, described as one of the most precious cultural properties of man's cultural heritage. On that night, the destination weather wasn't great, but the trip had been uneventful until the crew commenced their approach. The weather forecast indicated a wind from the east at 17 knots, visibility of 10 kilometres in thunderstorms, one-eighth of cloud at 2,500 feet, and three-eighths at 3,000 feet. The controller added that a thunderstorm was building to the northwest of the airfield. The first officer was handling the aircraft. He requested an approach to runway 16 and was given a visual approach, with the provision that he could fly the NDB VOR procedure if conditions required it. The crew reported overhead the airfield for an instrument approach, and the controller replied that heavy rain was now falling. 
Shortly after, the NDB, non-directional beacon, failed. It's believed that it had been struck by lightning. But within a few minutes, it was back online, and Flight 600 reported that they had completed their procedural turn and were now inbound. They were cleared to land. Four minutes later, the 727 reached minimums and had commenced a go-around, having failed to see the runway. After climbing away, they requested an ILS approach onto runway 34, which would allow them to get closer to the ground and from which they stood a better chance of completing a landing. They were so cleared, and whilst they were positioning, the controller gave them wind readouts of 180 at 6, 150 at 13, 150 at 15, and 140 at 17. They started their approach, but with the significant tailwind and problems keeping to the glide path, the crew informed the controller that they would go around for a second time and divert to Daran. They initiated the go-around at 300 feet, above their minimums, applying go-round power, moving the flaps to 25 degrees and raising the gear. The 727 climbed to 750 feet, with the speed falling to 140 knots, but that's as high as they got. The aircraft descended rapidly, reaching a rate of 4,200 feet per minute, the speed rising in the last few seconds to 170 knots. It pancaked into the ground almost wings level, with the nose about 10 degrees up. Mortally wounded, the city of Petra bounced up, rolled inverted, and then crashed back into the ground, sliding tail-first into the fire station, about 2,500 feet from the first impact point, breaking up as it careered along the ground. A post-crash fire engulfed the wreckage, causing more loss of life. 64 people were on board, of the 15 crew, only four died and two were seriously injured, but amongst the 49 passengers, 41 perished and six were seriously injured. The inquiry decided that the probable cause of the crash was wind shear due to a microburst from the thunderstorm. The severity of the microburst exceeded the performance of the aircraft to overcome it. The board stated that the encounter came about because of the crew's decision to conduct another approach to land without taking into account the severity of the weather over the airfield. Microbursts generally raise the fear factor for most pilots and most successful airline pilots avoid the conditions around which they occur. Typically, they're associated with cumulonimbus that is, rain-bearing cuneiform clouds that may or may not be described as thunderstorms. Such clouds have usually developed from a couple of thousand feet up to 30, 40 or 50,000 feet, and within them are circulating currents of air that hold enormous quantities of water and extend up into regions of very low temperatures. When conditions allow, Cold, heavy precipitation made up of rain, hail or verga 
that's rain that evaporates before reaching the ground, falls out of the cloud in strong downdrafts that can exceed 6,000 feet per minute. When one of these columns of air, usually around 2.5 miles in diameter or less, hits the ground, it spreads out in all directions away from the impact point. Should you meet one, you'll initially encounter a strong headwind that causes airspeed to rise and you'll be forced upwards. This is usually countered by throttling back to reduce the speed to normal and by increasing the rate of descent to get back to the glide path. In a mile or so, the headwind reduces as you fly into the downdraft. Speed will drop and the aircraft will be carried down with the column of air descending towards the ground. The falling speed may cause a stall and asking sluggish engines to accelerate from a low power setting to transition into a climb is often a forlorn hope. Many have failed to recover. Even if one manages to pass through the downdraft, the dramatic change from a strong headwind to an equally strong tailwind is often enough to spell disaster. Such was the finding of the inquiry. For Alia 600, their flight ended in tragedy. But for our airline pilot guy, APG 600 will, I'm sure, end in quite a different way. It's a milestone for Captain Jeff's marvellous career, and whilst he is giving up the left-hand seat for some other lucky candidate to fill, he's moving on to an equally rewarding part of his life. He will take his RV into the promised land of retirement in the sure knowledge that he is admired by many and has done himself proud. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that wonderful podcast at airlinepilotguide.com. Plain Tales is also a standalone podcast, and if you're listening to this, you'll probably already know. And if you'd like to help us along with our stories, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks very much, and thanks for listening.